0: As you might have heard me say already, motherhood is one of the most challenging things I've done to date. After a long struggle with infertility, I finally had my twins at the age of 41. Three and a half years into motherhood and one season of my podcast later, I host like minded strong women on my show who share their stories and if and how they strike a balance between motherhood, marriage, work, friends, and self-care. I have absolutely no experience other than the fact that I'm struggling to keep my sanity through all the chaos. I don't know about everyone else up there, but I think we set the bar so high these days and we're all trying to be perfect. Fuck perfect. As Brene Brown puts it, imperfections are not inadequacies. They're reminders that we're all in this together. I'm joined today with Natalie Carpenter all the way from New York. She's a blogger and a health coach. Most of her social media content focuses on infertility, and since infertility is a topic that is very dear to me and that I experienced firsthand for many, many years, I wanted to tell her story and share her journey. There are so many elements that come into play vis-a-vis this sensitive topic. Certain things are out of our control, and there are some elements that we can control, such as the process of finding a doctor. Yes, I know. You wouldn't think it's important or would make a difference, but coming from someone who has had three different doctors, I tell you, it's super important. It made me realize that the process of selecting the right doctor should include an extensive screening process in order to get the right fit. You really need to select a doctor with whom you click and that takes the right boxes for you. Natalie and I also discuss parenthood and how the path isn't necessarily a linear one. And doesn't look the same for everyone. It's a journey that comes naturally to some, but on the other hand, it can be a painstakingly difficult experience and a struggle for many.
1: Infertility doesn't seem to ever go away, and um, and it may for some people go away physically, but it seems to linger emotionally, mentally for many. And um, I, I would say that I probably feel that way on all the sides, right? Physically, mentally, and emotionally. It's very much become a part of everything that I do at this point. And I always say that I kind of fell into infertility. It's not something that I ever thought that I would be a spokesperson for. In fact, I really didn't want people to know about it. I became aware of it when I was in my, you know, almost mid thirties and I had just gotten married and my husband and I were interested in expanding our family. I I, I always say just for the record that it only takes two to be a family. So when I say expanding my family, I'm talking about having a child in the very first place for me. So a lot of lessons there for me. I think I first and foremost have learned that Unfortunately, not everything happens for a reason. That's my own belief. And I know everybody doesn't subscribe to that and that's okay. But uh, I used to think that that would just be, you know, part of the story because I thought that was part of everybody's story. And after a year of not, not trying, it was mentioned over some conversation with a friend who asked if I wanted to have kids and, you know, like the kind of questions that people really shouldn't ask, but they do anyway. And I guess we find it permissible because there are friends or our family members that prompted me to think, well, maybe something's not okay. So why don't I go and check things out? So I went to her doctor because she had a success story with her fertility spe- specialist, he wanted me to have a surgery that didn't really make a whole lot of sense. I got a second opinion, and then that began my sort of that that began my foray <laughs> into the slippery slope that is fertility and um, infertility. But what were
2: you diagnosed with?
1: I wasn't diagnosed with anything right off the bat. In fact, I was told that I was you know a great um, candidate that could probably do little to no treatment and that I'd be pregnant quickly. You know, that was the first doctor and the second and third doctors were within the same clinic and they thought, well, let's do an IUI. I'm sure we'll have a great, you know, success with that because everything looks great and normal. Explain
2: to to us uh, what is IUI? Yeah.
1: Intrauterine insemination um so it's otherwise known as the turkey baster method to many people mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um so i thought that that would be our answer and that didn't work um i i wasn't particularly upset about it i just figured oh okay it's just a it's it's a a numbers and a waiting game is kind of how it was presented to me. So I left that clinic and found another doctor in private practice who was affiliated with NYU. And she had helped one of my friends get pregnant multiple times. And so I thought, oh, she's my person. And at this point, you know, oh yeah, no, everything looks great. Still, you know, we, you're a great candidate for IVF and everything is going to be fine. And so we did two IVF's and both failed. And when I say failed, I mean there were no embryos to speak of. There it was just there were some ideas thrown out about oh maybe you are you know DOR, which is diminished ovarian reserve. Don't
2: you test that before you do the IVF round. I mean cuz here when when so I No, did- this is after. I tested for the, what is it called? The anti- anti-malarian,
1: anti-malarian
2: hormone. Which is supposed to see how many ovaries you've got left. Eggs? Eggs, yes. Is that what you do? So so
1: every doctor I've been to test, tested my AMH. And, and here's the, there's, there's, I'm not a doctor, but I do know that AMH fluctuates. Okay. And just because you have a low AMH does not mean you can't get pregnant. Okay. It's part of the science, but it's not down to a science. And it's interesting because my AMH at that point that I was seeing that now fourth doctor at this third clinic, my AMH was a little lower, um, but there was no indication that it had DOR, uh, diminished ovarian reserve until my IVFs weren't working. And so my doctor wanted to create some sort of a reason maybe as to why. It wasn't working. She thought maybe I was gonna go into early menopause soon. I mean, she had she had ideas, but she wasn't sure. Mm-hmm. And she said, um, you're unexplained. I mean, basically that's what she kind of
2: Oh my god, yeah, because I got that too.
1: Right. Because what that means is you know, is that there's nothing to fix. Yeah. Potentially. Which is
2: more annoying, isn't it?
1: Yes, because as a t- as a learned now, I see I am a learned type A. Um, over the years, it was very frustrating not to have something to fix. I couldn't control it. And that was, um, infuriating.
2: Yeah. So how many years into, like, so you did a few rounds with the, the bad experience that you had the first experience. And then now you're with this other doctor. Um, how many years, how long have, has it been now that you've been trying, let's say at that point,
1: it had been close to two years, but not quite
2: how are you feeling now? That is like, did you, I'm assuming now your focus was entirely on this now.
1: For sure. I mean, it became a second job. I had my primary corporate job that I worked at during the day that I didn't want anybody, you know, to, to see that I had a second job, right? Like I was working my tail off, um, I didn't want anybody to know about my dirty little secret and what, as you know, felt like that second job, because I had to, you know, kind of tiptoe around meetings and all of the things at work to accommodate my fertility treatments. Right. You you have
2: to take it to the bathroom and give yourself like an injection and that kind of Right.
1: But that also meant like having to, you know, go to, um, the clinic for suppression checks and, and, um, go for blood draws, right? Like when you're in treatment, there's so much of a time commitment that happens, not just from sneaking into the bathroom, but also you have to be present at your doctor's office. And it's not sadly, um, you know, once a week, it's like sometimes every day or every other day. And sometimes those, those appointments pop up and you find out about them the night before, you know, it it really is, it's a constantly evolving time period that feels like you have to be flexible around it. And it's very hard when you're working in a very sort of structured corporate and demanding corporate environment at that, right? So uh, it, it was that part was, um, was difficult. And I think that contributed to the stress that I already felt like, why is my body not doing what it's supposed to. And, um, it left me a little room to maybe question my doctors and maybe didn't let me think that there was something that I could do. Right. Like I felt like at first I'm just going to give this over to the experts. The experts are going to help guide me through this. And no one's going to learn about my secret because they're going to help me get pregnant. I'm basically outsourcing getting pregnant to people who understand it way better than I apparently do. Right. Like, and I ever could, um, definitely from a scientific perspective.
2: Yeah. And it be, and it becomes all about that. And like your husband's like minimally involved at that point now. So it's not about like, you know, having like this marriage and you guys have sex and then you guys like naturally procreate. Now it's like, he's just there for like to donate the sperm.
1: Yeah. It's totally unsexy. And the other part is too, that they don't, or at least up until that point for those with those first four doctors, no one ever said like, Hey, we should check your husband. And that was, that was, um, I, I think there's more discussion around male factor now. And although that didn't become part of our story, it was interesting to me that that wasn't a stone that was like turned over earlier than it was. It's so much more um, supportive when, you know, your husband's in it with you, like the testing alone kind of makes you feel like, okay, well maybe, maybe there's more to the story. And then regardless of whether there's male factor or not, there's always something that your spouse can do. They can take vitamins, right? They can eat better. So he didn't get tested at all? Not until, not until we got to our fifth doctor, no.
2: Oh, no, because here, actually, that's the first thing they do. They test both.
1: That's amazing. And, and I think people are, their clinics are doing it more so than they used to. Not always, but I think very much it's still considered a female first issue.
2: Yeah. It's true.
1: And I don't think that people realize that male factor is 40 to 50 percent of all infertility related cases at this point.
0: Also, I think in our part of the world, there's such a culture stigma towards infertility, especially if it happens to be the man's problem rather than the woman's. If it's the man's problem, it's always a case of, shh, don't tell anyone. At the beginning, I just wanted to keep it a secret but as my experience over the many years of trying and when my interaction with people went from bad to worse, at that point I kind of made a conscious decision to be more open about it. Firstly, because I knew it would help me release the emotional roller coaster I was dealing with silently and secondly, because I knew that it could have been less taxing for me had people been more forthcoming about it. It's nothing to be ashamed of. Although people here seem to interpret it that way. Over the years, I got every suggestion, question, and judgment that you can think of. And I spent so many years trying everything I could to get pregnant. I mean, everything. You name it, I've tried it. Meditation, better nutrition, all sorts of vitamin and other types of protocols, urine therapy, I've done it all. And yet nothing worked for me. I had, quote unquote, unexplained infertility, whatever that is. I think
1: There's something to be said about, you know, trying all the things um, that so long as it doesn't make you crazy. Right. I think there's a fine balance in it. There are certain things that are great for mental headspace during an otherwise very stressful period period of time, right? Especially I think for the type A's that can't control it. And it's so like, why is this not happening? What am I doing wrong? And there's a lot of self-blame and, and there's a lot of like, what did I do wrong along the way? And so there's guilt and that shame, right? Like there's just so many added layers of stuff that gets piled on during the entire process. And I think it's also, Really difficult in the very beginning. It's difficult the whole time, but in the the beginning particularly, at least for me, I didn't know what I didn't know. Yeah, and so there were a lot of things I would have asked if I had known about it. Um, I think I also wouldn't have felt so, you know, shameful and guilty had other people been talking about it. I mean, this is yeah. we're going back when I started not not trying. It was twenty fourteen. I did my first you know, IVFs in 2016. So I think the the environment for support and the community was not as it is today. There's so much more support available than there was back then. And as I began to trust myself, I began asking the doctors more questions and realizing at that point, what i really felt like i needed and and i think the biggest thing that i realized at that point was i needed to find a doctor that i vibed with and that believed in the science part and was really good at the science part and had good labs because that's something i i thought of but i didn't really think about before i also wanted to find a doctor who was going to support the things that i was doing and not make me think that i was crazy for it right like like the acupuncture, like the eating better. And so the type A side of me became a health coach for myself so that I could learn about nutrition and diet. So a lot of things changed. And I felt like that was the very first time I could control something in a sea of uncontrollables. I couldn't control the outcome of what was going to happen, but I could control what I put in to my body, to nourish my body. And that was a game changer. That third treatment didn't feel so terrible. Like like my, my bloating was significantly less my, just that, that hangover you get after you have a retrieval, um, wasn't nearly as terrible as it had been. Um, I just felt better in general. The medicine didn't seem to like be it made me a little crazy, let's be honest, but it didn't seem to make me quite as crazy as the first two times. And again, it was a different protocol. So there's so many things that could have changed, but I just felt better. And um, I, I I thought that it was something that I would do during my fertility journey only. And then it became a lifestyle. Yeah. And I don't practice, for the record, I don't practice as a health coach publicly. Like I I only to health coaching for myself and for my immediate family. Um, and for friends that, that ask for things about it, because my motivation was, was truly to understand nutrition, not because I was looking to change my career in, in that way. So I just want, I, for the record, there are amazing health coaches and there are amazing registered dietitians and I continue to learn from them. and I love what they are doing but the nutrition part became more of a passion hobby for me than it really has a career
2: yeah no i i completely understand i i went this ayurvedic center actually talking like it was like along the same lines of what you were saying when you were on this grab and go thing and you're you had this like hectic lifestyle when i went to see him he had you know he checks your pulse and i don't know you know very much about ayurveda but I don't know that much about it either, but you know, it's like all, it's a more holistic approach. And I remember him telling me, he's like, well, are you surprised that you're not pregnant? I said, yeah, I've tried everything. He's like, well, I can see from your pulse and, you know, from, you like just your overall, you know, demeanor is that you are, you are somebody who does too much. You're doing a lot. Your, your energy's, too high for, you're not a good host. It's not energy too high is that you're just all over the place. So you're, you're, you're not such a good host for getting pregnant. He's like, the baby doesn't want to come. He's going to be scared being in, you know, in your womb, you have to like, just like, basically he's like, chill, chill out, you know, and maybe you'll get pregnant then. So, but yeah, but it has, it has to do a lot with like, you know, what you put into your body. And that used, that affects me even till now, how I eat affects my mood. Like I could be in a good mood. I could be hyper, but if I'm eating the wrong foods, I can be hyper, but not in a good way. If that makes sense.
1: For sure. And it's interesting. You say that about um, Ayurveda and, and I don't know a ton about it. I remember hearing about Vata and Pitta. Am I right? And um, there's a third yeah. I don't know what it is actually. Okay. like I know there's a third, um, it, it, I remember being encouraged to eat warm nourishing foods,
2: during,
1: you know, eat with the seasons, right. Yeah. And, and, and warm nourishing foods to nourish the womb during the, the process. Um, so yeah, I, I think I got into bone broth during that period of time because of are And I still am, <laughs> but it's that uh, I, I learned about turmeric and like all the different, you know, warming spices and all of the different things that are anti-inflammatory. And, but to your point, I was told I was not a good host as well, um, because I was expending so much energy. Exactly. I wasn't welcoming it in.
2: Exactly.
1: And uh, so I can relate to that. And so I think that also, When someone first says that to you, it's kind of like, what are you talking about? And what am I supposed to do about that? Like, what's what's the plan from that statement?
2: But for me, actually, it was a little bit more comforting than everybody else telling me you're not trying hard enough or you need to do more or you need to. I, in Egypt, people are just so in your business that I used to get like this all right, left and center. No, you're going to the wrong doctor. My doctor is the best doctor. And then I see somebody else two weeks later. no, 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 that doctor is crap. You go to my doctor. He's much better. So, you know, it used to be. So when he told me that I was like, okay, that kind of makes sense. It makes me feel a little bit better than all this very like just useless feedback that I was getting from everybody else.
1: There's a lot. I think people want to believe that they have the answer. And they want to, you know, fix whatever they can't fix. And so they create these and share these canned statements in hopes that maybe there's some sort of nugget of comfort in it when oftentimes it's quite the opposite. And I think I've learned a, a lot through this experience. And one of them is giving unsolicited advice is never the right answer yeah. even if you know the answer and I, and many times people don't but even if you've been in it and you know the answer layering that onto someone else on an already existing you know cake so to speak of of emotions and all the other things is never helpful so yeah. at this point if, if if something is like glaring and I want to be helpful, then I will share. Um, I will ask someone, you know, um, if they ever need any resources, I'm here. Or, you know, um, you know, if ever, is, is there any way that I can support you with resources, um, with X, Y, and Z in the future? I'm I'm happy to, you know. Right, there are different ways of saying it to be supportive. Rather than saying, you have to do this.
2: That's what I do now. When people come to me, I'm always like, listen, anything you need, I'm here for you. I've done it all. So if there's anything you want to ask me, you can ask me. And I always tell them like, listen, it's going to eventually happen. Right. It'll work. You know, eventually it'll work. There's always a path. Yeah. Because I mean, I remember thinking, just everybody giving me all this unsolicited advice and it was just, no, I remember having like, breakdowns like now it's so funny because I'm it was such a long time ago now wasn't that long ago but it just I remember I was so consumed by that world of infertility and every month and every and I tried everything I tried okay the natural way after after like so many years of having sex just to like get pregnant I was like fuck it I don't even want to have sex with him anymore so I was like the IVF was like good I was like no I can't you know it just was awful and the IVF Round all these rounds of IVF and and changing doctors, like you said, and you know finding when you click with is I think really important. So you know, so that I always recommend for that reason. But I know that doesn't necessarily mean he's the one that's going to work with everybody.
1: There's also a place and space for every every place where you, like the doctor that I needed when I first started looked very different than the doctor who ultimately became my you know. Um, my doctor that I rely on still, right? Like it, the doctor that I start, I needed a cheerleader in the very beginning. And in the end, I didn't need a cheerleader. I needed somebody who knew his stuff or her stuff, right? Like you need the person who knows their stuff. And I didn't need a cheerleader. I needed somebody that was going to help me get pregnant. I needed somebody that was results oriented, but that's how, that's how I eventually, you know, came to know my doctor. So perhaps had I met my doctor in the very beginning, I don't know that he would have been my doctor. In fact, he wouldn't have been my doctor because he is known in the U S for treating difficult cases. And so I wouldn't even have thought that he was somebody that I was going to eventually work with. So I don't, I don't think it's a, it's not an issue to, to start with a doctor that eventually perhaps doesn't, you know, become your doctor. It's okay to switch. It's a pain in the butt to switch because then you have to start all over with the labs and all the different things. But I think if you go into it and starting with a doctor, you vibe with, it's much better for your mental health and your sanity. And I, I, even if you end up switching later on for whatever reason, it becomes a little less daunting um, Mm -hmm. when you know, you have support, even if again, that person's not like the cheerleader of cheerleaders. Like it, it really comes down to who is your person? Who is the person that you vibe with? Couple that with going to a place that, that you know, has good labs. It's a great start. It's a really great start. And we talked about there's always a path to parenthood. And I think that's a really difficult sort of discussion too, because there are so many there's so many stories that are wrought with loss. And sometimes there isn't a baby in the end, right? I always say there's a path to parenthood. It just may not look the same way you thought. I mean, I never thought I was going to do IVF, right? I, then I did IVF. And then when IVF wasn't working, I didn't necessarily think, that I was ever going to look at donor egg. And while that didn't end up being our path, I didn't even think that that was something that I would eventually consider. There are sperm donors too. If there's a male factor situation, although with male factor more often than not, what's super interesting is that except for in certain cases and cancer and and what have you, there are a lot of situations where male factor can actually be reversed, right? Women are born with the, the eggs we've got. There's nothing we can do about that. Um, But men have the ability to replenish their sperm. Mm -hmm. I think it's every 30 days. Don't quote me on that. Or 60 days.
2: No, I think it's longer. I think it's 60 or 90 days. days. Well,
1: it's, but they do have the ability to regenerate, right? Like the quality and health that, that we don't, um, in terms of like quantities. So, um, I think it's, it's all very, like, it's the whole entire dynamic of men and women, it's, there's just so many options now. There's sperm donors, there's egg donors, there's adoption, and, and no one should say that. I mean, I got a lot of them. would you just adopt? And I, I don't think that that's something that you say to someone. Um, I think that I was in a place that I started to think, what are the options that are available? I feel like the person that should be having discussions are, are doctors, right?
2: You're a mother now. Yes, I'm a mom now. How how old is your child? She is three and a half. And what was the route? How did you how did you end up having her? How many years later?
1: Close to at this point, three and a half ish. Close to that. It was three three and a half ish years all in. Um, I had had just I had a discussion with my doctor that if this particular round did not work. Again, and I didn't produce any embryos that I would consider egg donor, but I wanted to try one more time. I had taken some time to kind of rejuvenate my mental health and, um, and I had taken a break probably close to seven months from treatment. And I, I, I don't know, I was in a good headspace to do that cycle. So that was my third IVF. And at this point, um, I am, we're almost in 2017 and, um, I got my first ever embryos from a cycle and there were two, one was viable and we transferred that embryo in early 2017 and that embryo is my
2: now three and a half year old. Wow. That's amazing. If I, if I like, now I'm just thinking, you know, I was having anxiety when you're telling me that, because if I would have had one embryo and they would have transferred one, I would have had a nervous breakdown because I said, there's no fucking way I'm getting pregnant with one embryo. That's amazing. The difference
1: is I had gone from never getting embryos to getting an embryo. So that felt like a, like yeah. you know, a huge accomplishment for me. So, I mean, listen, there's, there's sometimes they take and sometimes they don't, and it's really frustrating, but I'm super grateful that I have. daughter
2: from the process it took me 14 years to get pregnant eight rounds of ivf so when people you know i used to always have these things like people telling me you know she tried and she tried and i like when i read books and when i when i listen to stories like these amazing success stories those never happen beyond two or three years some people like struggle for four years So when I used to hear this, actually now thinking about it, it's like kind of making me like a little bit like anxious. I used to be like, fucking hell, I've been doing this for 14 years. You know what I mean? So it's like, okay, fine. I I was married the first time from age 27, got divorced five years later. And then two years after I got remarried. So there was like a two year break in between, but I started from the first time I got my first marriage. I was, that was my thing. I wanted to have kids and I couldn't get pregnant. And then I, I was young. And like, like you said, nothing was being, nobody really spoke about that. And I was, this is in 2003. Nobody spoke about it. God forbid your husband is, has some problems with the sperm. So that's, I mean, and I was 27, I was young. So I just kind of, I kind of chalked it up to like destiny. Maybe, you know, maybe this is my first we had our issues so i thought maybe that was just like destiny so then you know we finally got divorced and then when i got preg- i when i got married again and i couldn't get pregnant i was like oh god it's my problem cuz at that point i had heard about people start having trouble getting pregnant before that i don't think i ever heard of people it didn't even occur to me this whole infertility thing i don't know i don't know what i was thinking i guess i was just very naive so when I tried again the second time, I was then freaking out. The first six months when I wasn't getting pregnant, I said, "Oh God, this is not good." And I'm now 34, and I'm not getting pregnant, and this is like derailing my my you know that that my ideal life of having four kids. And so you know, I, I was just in a because we all have a plan, right? I wanted to have, I just wanted to get married and I just wanted to be a mom. I wanted to have kids. I wanted to have, you know, four kids, maybe more if I could. So yeah, I'm getting older. And I said, Oh, I'm not going to be able to have four. I'm not going to be able to have four kids at this rate. And so I do the calculations. I have one kid now, if I get pregnant, you know? So, but then it took me such a long time. And I was so frustrated by listening to stories of people saying, I have, you know, I, I can't get pregnant. And I finally got pregnant. My second year is such a struggle. And, I, and the people are like sobbing and like the tears and I'm like, Oh my God, I want to kill these people. Right, right, right. And, and then the other thing is that, and no offense to you, but I'd had people would be like, they have a child and they're trying to again. And then they're like, really? So for me, it was like, for sure. I get that. But I'm like, you'd be like i just want one. Oh you are are you saying
1: that it frustrated you when people would say like it only takes one?
2: Well yeah, like when i would hear those stories from other people i'd be like so that that's like that's my question to you. You have one and so you're happy. And and mind you actually there's something else actually. In in the middle east you can't adopt. Ah, okay. can adopt, you can't get egg donors, you can't get sperm donors, can't get any of that. So my option is only to get pregnant like that or by IVF, or I'm not having Do people. To.
1: So then, I mean, and then that, that obviously limits your path, to the, a path to parenthood and, and there's nothing. Yeah. I, I've, I think there's a lot of happiness that I've seen, you know, from women and friends who have, have led a child free by choice life. But it's interesting because in, in, in that particular circumstance, then it becomes a, childless, you know, not by choice potential situation. Yeah. So do, do couples or women. And I'd, I'd also be curious about, you know, single women, um, pursuing, um, families too. Cause I imagine that that would be difficult in this circumstance that you're talking about, because then there wouldn't be a possibility for a sperm donor. If that's not
2: allowed, yeah. Yeah, no, it's tough. Because you can't, so yeah, so there are a lot of, there are some couples here that I know that don't have kids, like my parents' age. So I'm guessing now, if I think about it, they obviously could not get pregnant, I would think. Or maybe didn't that. want to,
1: but you're right. Like we don't, it, it so my question for you is, do people travel outside of the country for that? Or is that taboo?
2: No, a lot of people, if you have the means to do it, a lot of people travel outside. Like a lot of people would recommend to me, like just travel outside. I mean, here's the other
1: thing. Here's the other caveat that's really frustrating, at least in, I mean, not at least, it's, it's frustrating everywhere Um, is without not just quality, you know, healthcare, but without access to funds, it is limiting in terms of what your path to parenthood can be. And I think that's another element that, you know, we are just starting to really like dig into in the US and there's a long way to go, but it sounds like in the Middle East, the first, you know, element is if there's not the availability for options and there's not the, you know, for treatment, right. Um, in terms of availability, accessibility in your own country, but then even going outside, if you want to, but you don't have the funds, it feels like it's very limiting. Is egg freezing even a thing like a possibility, or that's not permissible either.
2: I don't know any single women that aren't Legally married that have done it.
1: Okay, because here in the states, it's it's recommended in in some cases, and especially if there is a is a a health related concern like cancer or what have you um, for fertility preservation. It's it's almost always recommended if a woman believes that she wants to bear children, um, you know, in her body or someone else's at some point. I imagine surrogacy would present its own you know, level of of concern and issue in the Middle East as well, it sounds like.
2: Yeah. No, these things, I think there are a couple of women I know that have done, who have traveled though to to actually to have kids via circus. Okay.
1: And do people know about that? Or is that a bit taboo?
2: It's taboo. I don't think anybody talks about it. I know this one person who did, but she doesn't really, she doesn't talk about it. and And I think I even heard somebody saying, oh but i don't they're like judging her on it. and i was like listen if she wants to do it she could do it i mean why are you going to judge her on that if she can't have kids and she wants to get a surrogate it's none of anybody's business but these are very 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 few people
1: that's so hard i mean it, it's it's like a whole different yeah you know, level because you know I, I again we talk about the path to parenthood um, and there's always a path you know if if you want to become a parent um, but it's it's limited to until the funds run out right here. But it sounds like it's that and then some in the Middle East, which has got to be so that's, that's, that's mind boggling. Yeah. There's always a taboo. I mean, there's, you know, the gen- general society is not necessarily as, as open-minded about all of this as, as I, you know, might be because I'm in sort of that world and that space, what have you.
2: But actually thinking like, I was, like during our conversation now, there's, there, we, it is very different, but at the same time, there are certain things that I realized are very similar, even though we're such, there, we're such in, in such different cultures. Like, for example, you said it's taboo, which I'm surprised about that you said it was taboo and something that, you know, you thought is your dirty little secret that you didn't want to let anybody in on. But how come you felt like that is, is, do people generally feel like that about infertility? Like you said, not now, but before, and why is people that? still
1: feel like that. I just don't have that same trauma around it that I once did. One in eight couples struggle with infertility and one in four miscarry or suffer loss of some sort. And that is really difficult, but those numbers weren't as available. I didn't really understand where to get all of my information. I think that people in the space have gotten louder about it. It's become maybe less um, taboo because maybe so many people are now talking about it. Yeah. I think with the advent of having celebrities talk about their experiences with IVF mm-hmm. and circusy and otherwise, there are, are plenty that do. Yeah there are still, there's still a discomfort that even I get when I'm talking to, you know, men socially, you know, I'm out at an event or what have you, not like I have been in the last year during pandemic, but like if I'm at an event or if I was at even a wedding or something like that, and somebody, you know, wanted to get into a a big topic around fertility. Yeah. That would make me even a little uncomfortable because I think, Again, there's that, that aspect of when, where men are coming from in the discussion, because to your point earlier, it's not, it's not really as talked about. And then you have to like wonder like why there's, 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 there's a whole societal thing there. So, um, I think infertility as a whole is maybe becoming a little bit more widely discussed in the U S there's still a long way to normalizing it, and I don't think it will be normalized until there is a mass acceptance, even on a on a, a broader level, like in the corporate arena, for there to be more benefits around it. And then, you know, also from a governmental perspective from a government um, position perspective, there needs to be support as well for the access elements too
0: thank you for listening in and joining for a whole new season of mommy's happy arrow you can connect with me on instagram at hiba Shanbo, and if you know someone who would be interested in listening to today's episode please share the show with them i'd really appreciate it and please leave us a review which really helps spread the word and grow our listenership You can find out more details, links, and show notes on my website at www.mommieshappyhour.com. I'll see you again in two weeks.